An Introduction to the Devout Life by St. Francis de Sales Book 4, Chapter 3 On the Nature of Temptation and the Difference Between Feeling It and Yielding to It Represent to Yourself A Young Princess Fondly Cherished by Her Husband Against Whose Virtue Some Vile Person Should Make an Attempt Sending to Her Some Messenger bearing his hateful overtures. First of all, the messenger would lay his master's propositions before the princess. Secondly, she would either give or refuse him audience. And thirdly, she would either consent or reject him. So when Satan, the world, and the flesh behold a soul espoused to the Son of God, they ply her with suggestions and temptations by which, firstly, sin is set before her. Secondly, she either takes pleasure in it or the reverse. And thirdly, she either consents or turns away. Which, in fact, are the three degrees by which we fall into sin? Temptation, delectation, and consent. And although these three steps may not be so obvious in every ordinary sin, they are palpably evident in great and heinous sins. Even supposing that temptation to some particular sin were to last our whole life long, it would not render us odious in the sight of God, so long as we neither took pleasure therein nor yielded our consent and that, because in temptation we are not active but passive, and whereas we take no delight therein, neither can we partake of any guilt. St. Paul was grievously tormented by the messenger of Satan, a thorn in his flesh. But far from being displeasing to God, he was the rather glorified therein. The holy Angela de Foligno was so torn with carnal temptations that we cannot hear of them unmoved. And so grievous were the temptations which assailed St. Francis and St. Benedict, that the one threw himself amidst thorns and the other into snow in order to mitigate them. Nevertheless, they lost nothing of the grace of God thereby, but rather grew in grace exceedingly. You must then be brave among temptations, and never imagine yourself to be conquered as long as they are displeasing to you. Keeping clearly in mind the difference between feeling the temptations and consenting to them, which is that you may feel them while they displease you, but you cannot consent to them unless they please you, since taking pleasure therein is the ordinary step towards consent. So then, the enemies of our salvation may offer us as many lures and snares as they will, may be even watching to effect an entrance into our heart, may what make what overtures they please, 
but as long as we have the resolution to take no pleasure therein, we shall no more offend God than the princess whom I brought forward as an example would offend her husband, while she took no delight in the propositions she received. There is, however, one difference between the princess and our soul. The princess, when she has heard the vile proposition, can banish the messenger and hear no more about it. But the soul is not always able to banish temptation, although she is always able to refuse consent. Therefore, however long our temptation endures, as long as we detest it, we shall be uninjured. But as to the satisfaction which may ensue upon temptation, inasmuch as our soul has two natures, one inferior, the other superior, and the former will not always obey the superior, but takes its own course, so sometimes the inferior part of the soul takes pleasure in temptation without the consent and contrary to the will of the superior. This is that contest and war of which St. Paul alludes when he says that the flesh lusts against the spirit, that he sees a law in his members fighting against the law of his mind, and similar things. Did you ever observe a large fire heaped up with cinders? If some ten or twelve hours afterwards you seek the fire, you will barely find a lingering spark in the center of the hearth, and that with difficulty. But since you can discover it, there is undoubtedly some fire left, and that will suffice to rekindle the extinguished fuel. So it is with charity, which is our spiritual life, amidst great and pressing temptations. Temptation casting its attraction into the inferior nature, as it were, buries the soul in ashes, and seemingly extinguishes the love of God, for it is nowhere to be seen save in the center and depth of the heart, and even there it is hard to find. Nevertheless, there it is, since, although our whole soul and body are disturbed, we still persevere in the resolution not to consent to sin or to temptation. And that attraction which gratifies the outward man displeases the inner man. And although temptation surrounds our will, it has not effected an entrance into it, by which we see that this attraction is involuntary and therefore not sinful. Chapter 4. Two Illustrations of This Principle It is so important for you to rightly understand this that I will further supply you with examples. That young man of whom St. Jerome tells us, who was bound with silken fetters upon a bed of delights and exposed to every temptation by one who sought to overcome his chastity, do you not suppose that his senses must have admitted the attraction, and his imagination received the impression? 
doubtless it was so. And yet, amidst such trial, amidst so terrible a storm of temptation, he bore witness that his heart was not overcome, nor his will consenting. For when his mind saw all his members rebelling against her, and having no control over any except his tongue, he bit that off and spit it into the face of his temptress, who persecuted his soul more cruelly than the executioner could have done. For which very reason the tyrant who had despaired of subduing him by torture thought to do so by sensuality. The whole history of the combat which St. Catherine of Siena endured is most admirable. The substance is as follows. The devil being permitted by God vehemently to assault her purity so long as he touched her not, filled her heart with all manner of unholy suggestions, and together with his associates exposed her to all manner of assaults, which although they were external, so penetrated her heart that according to her own confession, all except her most refined and pure, superior will, was agitated by the storm. This lasted some time, until at last, beholding the Savior, she exclaimed, O oh, my Savior, where were you when my heart was so filled with darkness and pollution? To which he replied, My daughter, I was within your heart. How could you be there? she asked when it was so foully tenanted. Do you come into that which is impure? But he inquired, Tell me, did these unholy thoughts fill your heart with pleasure or sadness, with delight or bitterness? With exceeding sadness and bitterness, she made answer. Then he replied, Who filled your heart with such sadness except myself, who was hidden within your soul. Believe me, my daughter, had I not been there, these thoughts which assailed your will but could not master it, would have conquered and effected their entrance. You would freely have received them, and so your soul had perished. But inasmuch as I was within, I filled your heart with displeasure and resistance so that it resisted the temptation to the utmost of its power, which, being less than it otherwise would, for that reason it experienced still greater grief and hatred of itself. Therefore your sufferings were worthy, and have greatly added to your virtue and to your strength. Here you see how this fire was heaped over with temptation and attraction, even within her heart and around her will, which yet by our Saviour's aid resisted with bitterness, repugnance, and detestation the suggestion of evil, refusing all consent to sin. O oh, grievous trial, when a soul that loves God does not know whether he is within her or not, or whether that divine love for which she combats is wholly extinguished within her or not. But the choicest flower of perfection in heavenly love is 
when the lover suffers and combats for love without knowing whether he possesses that love for which and by which he combats. Chapter 5 Encouragement for the Tempted Soul These grievous assaults and powerful temptations are never permitted by God except to those whom He purposes to exalt in His pure and excellent love. Nevertheless, they are not on this account certain to attain thereto, for sometimes those who have bravely withstood such violent attacks do not continue faithful to the divine goodness, but are overcome by little temptations. Therefore, should you ever be afflicted by grievous temptations, be sure that God grants you a special favor by which he intimates that he would raise you up before his face. But still, be very humble and fearful, not feeling confident that you can overcome trifling temptations because you have overcome greater, except by continual faithfulness toward Him. Whatever temptations then assault you, and whatever attraction ensues, so long as your will refuses consent to either, be not afraid. God is not displeased. When a man has fainted and gives no sign of life, we place our hand upon his heart, and if we find the slightest action there, we decide that he lives, and by the help of some cordial or stimulant, he may be restored to consciousness. Thus, sometimes through violent temptations, our soul seems to have lost all her strength, and, as in a faint, to be without spiritual life or motion. But if we would know the truth, we must feel the heart. If the heart and will retain their spiritual action, that is to say, if they persevere in refusing to consent and follow temptation and attraction, the spirit of resistance abides in our heart, and we may be certain that charity, the life of the soul, is still within us, and that Jesus Christ our Savior is within it, although silent and hidden so that, by continual prayer, participation in the sacraments, and trust in God, we shall regain our strength and enjoy a vigorous and blessed life. Chapter 6 How Temptations and Attraction May Become Sinful The princess of whom we spoke could not prevent the vile overtures made to her, since they were offered without her consent. But if, on the other hand, she had in any way sought to attract them, undoubtedly she would be guilty, and however she might draw back, she would still deserve blame and punishment. Thus, sometimes mere temptation becomes a sin if we have brought it upon ourselves. For instance, if I know that if I play, I easily lose my temper and use bad language, and that gaming is a temptation to me. In such case, I sin whenever I play, 
and I am guilty of whatever temptations may hurt me in so doing. Whenever it is possible to avoid the attraction which accompanies temptation, we sin in encountering it in proportion to the pleasure it gives us, or the consent we give, be it great or little, for a short or a long while. If the princess hearkens at all to the unholy overtures made to her, she is to blame. But if, having heard them, she takes pleasure therein, dwelling with satisfaction upon them, although she would not actually consent to the evil, she still gives the spiritual consent of her heart by her satisfaction. There is impurity in allowing either heart or body to consent to what is impure. And impurity consists so entirely in the consent of the heart that without it the consent of the body cannot be sin. If then you are tempted to sin, reflect whether you have voluntarily brought it on yourself. And when the temptation is in itself sinful, whether you have thrown yourself at it, that is, whether you might not have avoided it, or have foreseen the temptation. If you have in no way induced it, then it cannot be imputed to you as sin. When the attraction which follows temptation might have been avoided and yet has not been so avoided, the measure of sin is according to the duration of its stay and the degree in which we have accepted it. The woman who, although she does not seek idle attentions, yet takes pleasure in them when offered, is to blame if those attentions are in themselves pleasing to her. Thus, if the man who seeks her plays beautifully on the lute, and she takes delight not in his attentions but in the sweetness and harmony of his music, there is no sin, although she should beware of this delight lest it lead to further delight in the attentions themselves. Or, if someone suggests to me an ingenious, clever stratagem to avenge me upon my enemy, and I give no consent, and take no pleasure in the proposed vengeance, but only in the ingenuity of the stratagem, I am not guilty of sin. Although it is dangerous to indulge much in such pleasure, lest little by little it lead me to take pleasure in the revenge itself. Sometimes we are surprised by some lurking attraction quickly following temptation, before we are fairly on our guard. And this cannot exceed a light venial sin, which, however, is aggravated if after perceiving the danger we negligently tamper with the pleasure hesitating whether to receive or reject it. Still more, if having perceived the danger, we remain in it for some time by a true negligence, without any sort of purpose to reject it. But, if voluntarily and with deliberation we resolve to take pleasure in such delectation, such deliberate resolution is a grievous sin, supposing that the object of de delectation is mortally sinful. 
it is a great sin in a woman to give heed to unholy love, even though she has no intention of ever yielding to it. Chapter 7 Remedies for Great Temptations Whenever you feel the approach of temptation, imitate a little child who sees a wolf or a bear in the plain. He instantly flies into his father or mother's arms, or at all events, calls upon them for help and succor. Do you, in like manner, fly to God, seeking His mercy and help? Such is the remedy taught to us by our Lord Himself. Pray that you enter not into temptation. If nevertheless the temptation continues or increases, hasten in spirit to embrace the Holy Cross, as though you beheld Jesus Christ crucified before you. Then promise not to yield to temptation, and ask His aid to preserve you, and continue to do so while the temptation lasts. But while thus protesting and struggling, do not contemplate your temptation, but only contemplate the Savior. For if you dwell upon the temptation, it may shake your courage, especially if it be powerful. Divert your mind from temptation by good and praiseworthy employments, for as these enter and occupy your heart, they will banish temptations and evil thoughts. The chief remedy against all temptations, great and small, is to unfold your heart and lay all its suggestions, affections, and feelings before your spiritual director. For you may observe that the first pledge which Satan seeks to gain from the soul he seduces is that of silence. And he who seeks privately to lead a woman into sin cautions her against informing her father of his overtures. But God would ever have us, on the contrary, make our temptations known to our superiors and guides. If after all this our temptation still perseveres in wearying and persecuting us, we have no further remedy except on our side to persevere in protesting that we will not consent. For just as a maiden cannot be married as long as she refuses her consent, in like manner the soul, however troubled, cannot be injured while she refuses her consent. Do not argue with the enemy, and give him no answer except one, that with which our blessed Lord answered and confounded him. Get thee behind me, Satan. The Lord thy God shalt thou adore, and him only shalt thou serve. And just as a faithful wife will neither look at nor listen to him that would lead her astray, but hastily places her heart under her husband's protection, and without parleying with danger, renews her vows of fidelity to him. So the devout soul, when she is assailed with temptation, must not dally with it by dispute or answer, but simply turn to Jesus Christ her spouse, and renew her protestations of faithfulness to him, and that she will ever be solely his. Chapter 8 On the Importance of Resisting Small Temptations
although we must struggle with invincible fortitude against great temptations, and the victories obtained over such are most useful. Yet on the whole we gain more by struggling against the lesser temptations which assault us. For although the greater are of a more important nature, the number of lesser temptations is so much more considerable that the victory over them is worthy to be measured against that over those which are greater but rarer. Doubtless bears and wolves are more dangerous than flies, but bears and wolves do not cause us as much annoyance and irritation as flies, and consequently do not try our patience as much. It is easy to abstain from murder, but very difficult to avoid those angry tempers which are incessantly aroused within us. It is easy to abstain from adultery, but it is not so easy to be holy and ceaselessly pure in word, look, thought, and deed. It is easy not to steal what belongs to another, but harder to never long after and covet it. Easy not to bear legal false witness, but hard never to tell lies in common conversation. Easy never to get drunk, but hard to always be perfectly temperate. Easy never to desire any man's death, but hard never to desire what will injure him. Easy to avoid open defamation, hard not to indulge disdain. In short, these lesser temptations, anger, suspicion, jealousy, envy, lightness, folly, vanity, deception, affectation, artifice, impure thoughts, are the continual trials of the most fervent and devout persons. Wherefore we must prepare to resist them with the utmost care and diligence, assured that in proportion to our victories over these petty foes will be the number of jewels in that crown of glory which God makes ready for us in paradise. Therefore, while we are prepared to contend bravely and well against great temptations whenever they assail us, let us in the meanwhile be diligent in resisting these lesser, more trifling attacks. Chapter 9 how to remedy such temptations. These trifling temptations of vanity, suspicion, vexation, jealousy, envy, lightness, and similar failings, which are ever hovering before our eyes like flies and gnats, now stinging one cheek, now the other, inasmuch as it is impossible to be wholly free from their importunity, will be most effectually combated by our not allowing them to torment us. For although they annoy us, they cannot do us any real harm, as long as we are firm in our resolution to serve God. Treat such assaults, then, with contempt, and do not even condescend to inquire what they signify, but let them hum and buzz about your ears as they will, and attend to them no more than you would to flies. And even if they bite you, do not let them remain in your heart. Be content with simply driving them away, neither fighting with them nor parleying with them, but merely making contrary acts. Above all, acts of the love of God.
I would not have you persevere in making these acts in opposition to the prevailing temptation, for that would resemble a contest. But after having made an act in direct contradiction, if you have had time to ascertain the nature of the temptation, merely turn your heart toward Jesus Christ crucified, and making an act of love to him, kiss his sacred feet. This is the best way of overcoming the enemy, whether in great or little temptations. For as the love of God includes the perfection of all virtues, and that more excellently than the virtues themselves, so is the love of God a sovereign remedy against all vices. And if your mind is habituated to seek that refuge in all temptations, it will not need to contemplate and examine the temptations, but as soon as it is disturbed, it will turn to its shelter, which, furthermore, is so obnoxious to the evil one, that when he perceives that his temptations only provoke us the more to that divine love, he will cease to offer them. Such is my advice with regard to these trifling and frequent temptations, which, if dealt with individually, would waste our time and weaken our strength. Chapter 10 How to Arm the Heart Against Temptation From time to time examine what passions predominate in your soul, and having ascertained them, let your way of life be altogether opposed to them, in thought, word, and deed. For instance, if you know you have a tendency to vanity, reflect often on the misery of our present life, how these vanities will weigh upon your conscience on your deathbed, how unworthy they are of a noble heart, how they are but a childish trifling, and so forth. Often speak contrary to your vanity and despise it, however reluctantly, thus making yourself, as it were, the enemy of your vanity. For by dint of opposing anything, we gradually learn to hate it, even though we may have begun by loving it. Perform as many acts of abjection and humility as you can, in spite of your reluctance. For by this means, you will weaken your vanity and strengthen your humility, so that, when temptation arises, your inclination will be less favorable to it, and you will have more power to resist it. If you are disposed to greed, reflect often on the folly of this sin, which makes us the slave of that which is destined only to be our servant. Remember that when death comes you must forsake it all, and leave your riches in the hands of those who will squander them, or abuse them to their own ruin and damnation, and so forth. Condemn avarice, and be warm in praises of generosity. Exert yourself to be abundant in giving alms and charity, and in occasionally forbearing to seize occasions of gain. If you are inclined to trifle with the affections, either exciting or being excited with love, reflect how dangerous an amusement this is both to yourself and others, 
how unworthy a thing it is thus to trifle with and profane the noblest affections of the soul, and how it leads to excessive lightness of mind. Cultivate purity and simplicity of heart, and conform your actions to such a temper, avoiding all affectations and flirtations. Finally, in time of peace, that is, when you are not under the pressure of those temptations to which you are most subject, carefully practice the opposing virtue, and, if occasions do not present themselves, go out of your way to seek them, and thus you will strengthen your heart against future temptation. End of chapter 10